21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Why battery metals industry, Anthony? Well, look, um, we're sitting here and, you know, what is the one thing that every person to ever live has in common? You know, they were born and they died on this earth. And, you know, I think we are now at an awareness and at an inflection point where we realize we have to do something about pollution. We have to do something about climate change. And we have to do something about transitioning from uh, coal and hydrocarbons to something which is greener. And, you know, we've decided, at least for the time being, that electric vehicles and batteries are that transition or they're the beginning of the transition. You know, that, that's not the answer ultimately. What is your strategy for growing your money while doing good? Well, I have, I have a couple strategies here. So uh, the first one really centers around carbon credits. And, and it's kind of something that nobody knows anything about. You know, everyone sees that there's a European credit and, and that's really the regulated market. There's one in California, Canada, all over the world, there are regulated markets. But, you know, the voluntary market, I think is much more interesting because There's a wide variety of, of projects, but in order to generate a carbon credit, you know, there are these removal projects. And that means you're taking carbon out of the air. And in particular for me, I like the ones that are nature-based. So reforestation, uh, preventing logging, bringing wildlife, biodiversity back into ecosystems. And so for me, on the one hand, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I was raising some money Uh, about six or eight months ago. And the investor asked me, Anthony, what is the worst thing that can happen here? And I, and I thought about it and I said, you know, the worst thing that happens is we preserve hundreds of thousands of acres and you don't make any money. And, and that's really the first time I could say that because I've, I've been involved in all kinds of uh, investments over the years where the worst thing that can happen is you go to zero or even owe money. But when you're involved in a nature-based solution carbon credit, you know, you can actually... Um, help save and preserve for generations to come uh, these wide tracts of land. So that's that's one part of it. Um, that's probably the more exciting part of it. I think the other part of it is, you know, we're involved in the nickel business. We're the largest producer of MHP in the world, mixed hydroxide product. And, you know, nickel is a really critical component of batteries that are rechargeable. So not just electric vehicles, but all sorts of batteries. And You know, one of the big problems that we face globally is, is pollution. So we talk about climate change, but pollution and uh, a consumer-driven economy where people just throw stuff away. And, you know, rechargeable batteries are great because uh, they get more than one use. And they also, by the way, help power electric vehicles like Tesla and, and all the other ones that we see out there, Rivian and so on. What do you consider to be some of your most important aspects of your work? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's, that's kind of, um, there's a bunch to unpack there. But, you know, for me, I, I view myself as a naturalist and um, someone who really has uh, come from a place in the commodities business um, of, of wanting to, you know, really help the environment, to really help the earth. You know, we're all, you know, we just have this short window of life where we're on this planet. And, uh, you know, you spend so much focus on the day-to-day. -day. And I think I've kind of reached this point now where um, the most critical aspect of it 
is is making money for shareholders because if you're not creating a return you're not going to have the money and the ability to do anything and then making sure those funds are directed towards projects that you know ultimately um can benefit the earth and that that's pretty unique i'm, I'm not aware of too many people doing that you know i think it, what has you've seen historically is uh, commodities businesses ripping commodities out of the ground and moving on and now i think there's a growing awareness of you know the need to be a little bit more thoughtful in relations with local communities uh, to make sure that they're benefiting from the extraction of, of metals and, and materials from the ground i think that there's a, an awareness now of the need to um, do this in a way that is you know envir as environmentally friendly as it can be ultimately you're always going to be digging a hole in the ground and you know i think we're at the brink now of, of pretty dramatic changes in the industry is because there's a realization that if we don't change it'll be real problems and you know what i would challenge a listener or a viewer to do is look around the room that they're in right now and and literally every as i look around every single thing that i see is either mined or grown this is the most fundamental and basic component of everything that we do you cannot have a modern life without mining it doesn't exist right you know, you drove to your work in a car powered by gasoline or, you know, electric vehicle. Uh, that car has copper, aluminum, you know, it has, you know, your phone that you might be talking on as soon as we hang up has tin and tantalum. So all these things are mined or grown. And um, I think the conversation is now changing and we're, we're getting to a point where we acknowledge that this has to happen, but how can we do it in a way that, uh, is more inclusive to stakeholders a way that is potentially uh, better in the long run for the environment and and so on what do you think uh, is the key to success when it comes to investing in that specific area well i just tell you in general my first rule is don't fight the tape <laughs> you know uh, if you look around right now you have these huge geopolitical shocks with russia and china ukraine um and, and so you know, I think that there are times when you're best off doing nothing um, because, okay, we're always going to be able to read about the guy or girl that got in at the bottom and made, you know, but but that's that's not the average. That's not the average person. So I think first and foremost, I, I would say you don't have to do anything sometimes, which is important. And then I think next you need to determine your time horizon. Uh, if your time horizon is, you know, six weeks, that's one thing. If it's 10 years, that's a, another thing. Um, and then I think you need to uh, take a, an approach, a basket approach. So uh, in the case of our sector, for instance, if you said, I believe in the electric vehicle revolution, that that's something that you believe in, you know, I wouldn't go and buy a single stock. I would go and I would put together a basket of copper producers, nickel producers, maybe some lithium producers. So I'd have a basket of names. Uh, and then, you know, something that I think uh, a lot of people I talk to um, need to think more about is diversification across uh, market cap. And, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, look, I, I'm all in on this name. And I ask them about the name. I look it up and it has a $20 million market cap. And this is crazy. You know, you, you should never, in my view, um, go all in and let, you know, unless you just, unless it doesn't matter to your overall personal financial situation, that's something different. But if you're talking about your retirement, for instance, you know, it, it's critical that you consider liquidity, 
and the nature of the microcap stocks. So if you liked nickel, for instance, or if you like copper, for instance, uh, it would make sense to even own a basket of copper names that might include some earlier stage companies where you could have a 10 or 20 bagger, but it most certainly should also include uh, some very large liquid names that you could buy and sell any day of the week. Uh, you know, one of the things about these resource companies that uh, people don't often think about is, is something in, in the financial world we call theta, which is time decay. So an option, the theta is that over time it becomes worth less money. Uh, you know, a 10-year option, um, hypothetically, is worth more than a one-year option because you have nine years, right? Well, in a lot of ways, these resource companies are like options, long-dated options with theta. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the microcap stocks have to continually raise money, diluting down the shareholders. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the game. But but if you are buying copper for the sake of copper, <clears throat> you know that theta over time is going to slowly deplete your investment in a microcap stock unless they hit. And so, you know, my advice is really to consider buying baskets of stocks, portfolios of stocks. You know, if you want the broader energy transition, you're going to include, you know, the nickel, the cobalt, the copper, the lithium. Maybe even, by the way, you include some electric vehicle um, component makers, chip makers, right? Like you get the big full view. If you say specifically, I like nickel or I like copper, once again, same approach. Take a basket within the copper names and then buy a couple of the biggest, most liquid names. Don't don't go all in on the microcaps because I don't believe in that scenario you're actually getting the exposure you want. So it's all about managing risk. And I think um, you know, in this world, a lot of times people who are speaking to retail investors, uh, they're, they're really driving for the company that they're in charge of and are raising money for. And I think that's a, a kind of a not a great service to the community. Instead, I think really as an investor, you should just think about what you're trying to achieve and diversify and construct portfolios to manage your risk. It's, you know, it's not about going all in because that almost never works. It's about managing risk and, uh, you know, making sure you identify what you want to achieve, the timeline and how much pain you're willing to sit through. Right. And which is another, another topic. Um, we might all agree that copper is going to look great in three years. By the way, China has a big problem. It's going way lower first. Are you able to sit through those three years? If you're not, don't own any microcaps, man. Own the big caps that allow you to sell it on any given day, right? There's value in liquidity. And that's a really important uh, concept that I think, you know, just general retail investors miss that. That's a, I'll say it again. There's value in liquidity. Because of the geopolitical situation, because of the, the, the whole mess that, that we have in the world, what is um, your specific perspective on risk given the current state of the stock market? Yeah, I mean, I think the one risk that we're not actually giving enough um, weight to is is really um, Vladimir Putin, you know, shooting a, a a small nuclear warhead uh, in eastern Ukraine or testing one. I, I think the day that that happens, the market is gapping down universally. All risk assets risk off. And, you know, even in the last few days, we've seen that, um, you know, he is allegedly moving these uh, submarines closer into the Crimea. We've also seen 
um, train movements. So I, I think that um, you know, in the West, and I, I don't know if we've shared this, I, uh, I was a Fulbright scholar in Russia. Uh, I studied at Moscow State University. And you know, I think one of the problems that we have in the West is we have a hard time seeing the world from anyone else's point of view and perspective. And, and that's, of course, not to say that what Putin is doing is right, but I think it's, it's hard for us to conceptualize that this individual might shoot a nuclear weapon. And, you know, he's coming from a place of, 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 uh, of feeling that one of the great tragedies of the century was the demise of the Soviet Union. He feels rightly or wrongly slighted by the West. Uh, he's been embarrassed by what has happened in Ukraine and Kiev, especially in the early days. And even in the last two weeks in the East, uh, you know, it, it would seem that the West is, is probably has agents there and is heavily guiding these advanced weapons. Um, so that's all to say that, that I think that, you know, the, the whole pressure is, is building. And also like, let's not let the US off the hook. So what is happening here is the West has, and the U.S. have dumped huge amount of weapon systems in. This is big business, Raytheon. I mean, these guys make fortunes on this. And, you know, now you probably have the U.S. Um, arms sale apparatus calling India and Russia's, you know, consumers and, and saying, hey, guys, do you really want Russian weapons? Uh, it seems like they don't work. So, yeah, this is also big business. And I'm not suggesting that that's why the war is being fought, but but it would be, I'd be remiss to not kind of comment on the fact that, um, these weapons are on display and the U.S. sells a lot of weapons globally. And so, uh, once again, like it's a very complex thing and, you know, we've embarrassed him and um, that could happen. And if it does happen, I don't think the market has priced in that what will happen if, if um, he even tests a nuclear weapon. I think that's going to make the markets really scared. And what's next? What's the next step? You know, it, if it happens... Um, I would think that you would not then see pressure from China and India, you know, on Russia. I, I think that's the line. That's kind of a line where, you know, I don't think China wants that. I don't think India wants that. So I think that becomes a line for him. And um, I think you would just see tremendous sanctions. But you know, it's not without cost. You know, Russia is a massive hydrocarbon supplier, a massive nickel supplier, palladium. I mean, that you know, a lot of a lot of basic materials come out of there. And so, you know, his bet is that the pain, which is going to be inflicted globally, and in particular on Europe with gas, uh, that pain will outweigh people caring about Ukraine. I and mean, that, that's his bet. And so, you know, in, in a way, um, he's going to be really backed in a corner uh, before he shoots that nuke, because whilst I do think that the global community will come together, uh, once again, the pain that that will cause globally if if the Russian crude supply came off the market, you know, it's going to China now at a discount. If all of that came off the market, it's kind of hard to not see a pretty significant global recession. You know, U.S. shale can't wrap up, ramp up fast enough to plug a Russian crude full export ban. Absolutely, I understand that. By the way, do your industry has anything, uh, any connections with military as well? You know, I, you know, I would say that um, cobalt in particular is used in missile systems and, and advanced, uh, you know, kind of 
aerospace industry applications. So that's universally true. Co um, it's interesting. Russia has plenty of cobalt for their own particular needs through Norilsk. America has no real cobalt. So it's kind of interesting about that. And in fact, a little known fact that until recently, the last few decades, America had strategic reserves and had huge stockpiles of cobalt just for situations and other and other metals just for situations like this. Um, you know, I think other applications are really around chips and um, and the basic materials that go into it. But you know, there are a movement. There is a movement for. Um, electrification of heavy, heavy industrial vehicles, but I think that's still a ways off. As I said earlier, commodities is at the very base root of every part of our modern life. And uh, you can't know it all, but I actually find Twitter, interestingly, a really great source of information because, you know, you pick who you follow. Um, so there's a selection bias there, but uh, I think it, it's a really fantastic way, actually, to um, curate kind of a following. And then, you know, the big banking houses, they all produce research, Goldman and Morgan Stanley. And, and actually, the Canadian banks, because mining is such a critical part of their economy, have fantastic research. And then, you know, it's important to attend conferences um, and, and keep in touch with traders who are actually physically day-to-day -day trading, um, people who are developing mines, and it requires a lot of travel. I don't think there's one way to do it, but uh, it, it certainly requires you to constantly be um, thinking about things, meeting people, reading. And, you know, I think it's important that you, you're trying to kind of uh, push your bias aside and, and think about, you know, why this person, you know, why what they're saying, which is in contradiction to what you think might be right. Why are they right and you're wrong? And so it's, I think it's uh, important to really try to have an open mind about um, ideas. And, and then I, I comes back to like being a thematic investor in terms of like picking commodities. I really like um, thinking about some structural change in an industry like electric vehicles and then you know because mostly the world's going to be the same but if you have a structural change with a new demand coming in um, then you can start to change your supply and demand models and then you can like look to the future and say wow we have a big hole in copper supply in five years and you know that so i think that's interesting so that, that's how i look at the world how do you keep up with the rhythm? Uh, do you have any specific personality traits that you think are important for keeping up with the rhythm? And what's your daily routine? Do you have any specific daily routine? Do you practice any specific sport, meditation, anything like that? Yeah, so I try to uh, I try to run in the morning, get up, run in the morning, and then um, you know I go on Bloomberg. Look at the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, um, look at some papers in Africa, Canada. You know, I look at Twitter to see, you know, so I kind of look at the news flow, um, see what emails have come in overnight and really kind of get up to speed before I have morning calls and, and, and start the day. And then, you know, in the evening, I try to, uh, you know, try to cycle a bit. But I would say, you know, 
uh, my true passion is the outdoors. So I love rafting and fly fishing. And um, you can't do that every day, but you know, I really enjoy that. And I also enjoy skiing. What are some of uh, the challenges you have faced in your life and in your career? Personal life. I mean, just when you travel that much, it's really challenging on relation, personal relationships. I mean, you know, it's if you're gone 50% of the time, uh, that's hard. And by the way, not you're not just gone, you're in the air or you're, uh, you know, you're in the air when everyone's awake. And then when you get there, everyone's asleep and then you're jet lagged. And then when you come back, you're jet lagged. So I think uh, the travel is a heavy burden over time or even physically just staying in shape. It's very, you know, my, my weight over the years went up and down based on my travel schedule. So that's, I think that's, um, that's one, you know, and then I think, you know, when I look at some of the most exciting and also some of the most kind of big, the biggest train wrecks that I've been involved in over the years, it comes down to investing in all these different places that have different rules. And, and those rules might be written or unwritten. They might be cultural. They might be legal. But when you invest across <clears throat> large numbers of different countries, a lot of stuff can go wrong. And, and um, I think that managing that over the years has been the source of some of the big wins and, and probably some of the pileups. What advice would you give to someone um, considering a career in mining? Is it possible to, to go into that kind of a career as an entrepreneur or you need to be or you need to focus uh, to sea level uh, to, to be part of a corporation? Um, you know, there's always opportunity uh, to be an entrepreneur. I will say one of the big mistakes is like, you know, you, you know, you, you know, you're working at your job, working nine to five. Well, when you become an entrepreneur, you're working, you know, 365 days a year, you know, 20 hours a day. So I, I think for some reason, there's this idea among some kids that I've mentored that somehow an entrepreneur is working less and that's just not true. So I think the first thing you got to say is that um, if, if you're committed, that no one's going to care like you care for the businesses. The second one is, um, you know, you're taking on risk and there's huge rewards associated with that. But I can tell you, I've invested in lots of things over the years, which which have not worked. Um, in terms of commodities, yeah, there's always opportunity for entrepreneurs. My experience with entrepreneurship is usually the most successful entrepreneurs have an idea around something they know. You know, like, it, you know, you know, if if you um, I, I met this guy, I'll give you an example. So his his dad owned a regional um, grocery store. You know, there were six or seven of them and they were having problems with produce, like getting it in on the right time and it was going old. And, you know, this guy who has gone on to create a multi-billion dollar company, he was one of the first people to do injection molding pallets that had tracking devices in it. So think it leaves a warehouse, your carrots leave the way, you know, so he, this individual had the insight around the problem, which was like, groceries going bad and, and things getting lost. And he then he kind of saw that and came up with this idea, like, well, what if we had these pallets with the chip? This has been a long time ago, but what if we had these pallets with this chip in it and we rubberize them so we could reuse them and spray them? And um, that was that insight that he got from being there. And so, you know, I also would say one thing about entrepreneurs who are, want to be entrepreneurs is do something you know, you know, uh, or, you know, and that could be a hobby. Maybe you love fishing. Maybe there's an angle with that, or maybe you love running or, you know, your dad is in construction or your mom is in the construction because to just turn up to a totally new thing and, and think, oh, you're going to 
sort of change it all. I mean, yes, that's possible, but um, the most successful entrepreneurs I know, um, their ideas often come from an insight into something that they understand. So Anthony in five years, Nickel in 28 in five years. Uh, so in five years, um, I think, you know, we intend to continue to be the largest producer of MHP in the world and supplying the electric vehicle revolution. On the other side, um, I founded something called the Oregon Group, as in the state organ. And, you know, we uh, write articles and produce um, commodities centric information for retail investors. So you can check out the Oregon Group.com as well, and we'll continue to do that and help to, you know, inform investors about the changes going on in my industry. We are in a world rapidly transitioning to uh, a greener future. And there are any number of ways to invest in that. Microchips, electric vehicle automakers, in my case, commodity companies. And what I would say to you know entrepreneurs is, you know, in whatever sphere you're in, think about how you might be able to participate in that. Uh, what ideas that you have that might actually be able to to kind of connect in because the amount of money raised is staggering. You know, probably trillions of dollars. To investors, I would say, uh, you know, you want to capture some of that and, and uh, look at these companies and ideas and figure out what works for you and your situation and, and look at investing there. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.